The people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord gave them into the hand of Midian seven years. And the hand of Midian overpowered Israel, and because of Midian, the people of Israel made for themselves the dens that are in the mountains and the caves in the strongholds. For whenever the Israelites planted crops, the Midianites and the Amalekites and the people of the east would come up against them. They would encamp against them and devour the produce of the land as far as Gaza and leave no sustenance in Israel and no sheep or ox or donkey. For they would come up with their livestock and their tents. They would come like locusts in number. Both they and their camels could not be counted, so that they laid waste the land as they came in. And Israel was brought very low because of Midian. And the people of Israel cried out for help to the Lord. When the people of Israel cried out to the Lord on account of the Midianites, the Lord sent a prophet to the people of Israel. And he said to them, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I led you up from Egypt and brought you out of the house of slavery. And I delivered you from the hand of the Egyptians and from the hand of all who oppressed you and drove them out before you and gave you their land. And I said to you, I am the Lord your God. You shall not fear the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell, but you have not obeyed my voice. Now the angel of the Lord came and sat under the terebinth in Ophrah, which belonged to Joash, the Abiazrite, while his son Gideon was beating out wheat in the winepress to hide it from the Midianites. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him and said to him, The Lord is with you, a mighty man of valor. And Gideon said to him, Please, sir, if the Lord is with us, why then has all this happened to us? And where are all his wonderful deeds that our fathers recounted to us, saying, Did not the Lord bring us up from Egypt? But now the Lord has forsaken us and given us into the hand of Midian. And the Lord turned to him and said, Go in this might of yours and save Israel from the hand of Midian. Do not I send you? And he said to him, Please, Lord, how can I save Israel? Behold, my clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the least in my father's house. And the Lord said to him, But I will be with you, and you shall strike the Midianites as one man. And he said to him, If now I have found favor in your eyes, then show me a sign that it is you who speak with me. Please do not depart from here until I come to you and bring out my present and set it before you. And he said, I will stay till you return. So Gideon went into his house and prepared a young goat and unleavened cakes from an ephah of flour. The meat he put in a basket and the broth he put in a pot and brought them to him under the terebinth and presented them. And the angel of God said to him, Take the meat and the unleavened cakes and put them on this rock and pour the broth over them. And he did so. Then the angel of the Lord reached out the tip of the staff that was in his hand and touched the meat and the unleavened cakes. And fire sprang up from the rock and consumed the meat and the unleavened cakes. And the angel of the Lord vanished from his sight. Then Gideon perceived that he was the angel of the Lord. And Gideon said, Alas, O Lord God, for now I have seen the angel of the Lord face to face. But the Lord said to him, Peace be to you. Do not fear. You shall not die. Then Gideon built an altar there to the Lord and called it, The Lord is Peace. To this day, it still stands in Ophrah, which belongs to the Abiah's rites. That night, the Lord said to him, Take your father's bull and the second bull, seven years old, 
and pull down the altar of Baal that your father has and cut down the Asherah that is beside it and build an altar to the Lord your God on the top of the stronghold here with stones laid in due order. Then take the second bull and offer it as a burnt offering with the wood of the Asherah that you shall cut down. So Gideon took ten men of his servants and did as the Lord had told him. But because he was too afraid of his family and the men of the town to do it by day, he did it by night. When the men of the town rose early in the morning, behold, the altar of Baal was broken down, and the Asherah beside it was cut down, and the second bull was offered on the altar that had been built. And they said to one another, Who has done this thing? And after they had searched and inquired, they said, Gideon, the son of Joash, has done this thing. Then the men of the town said to Joash, Bring out your son, that he may die. For he has broken down the altar of Baal, and cut down the Asherah beside it. But Joash said to all who stood against him, Will you contend for Baal, or will you save him? Whoever contends for him shall be put to death by morning. If he is a god, let him contend for himself, because his altar has been broken down. Therefore, on that day, Gideon was called Jerubel, that is to say, let Baal contend against him, because he broke down his altar. Thus far the reading of God's word, you may be seated. Well, I am a child of the 90s, and in my opinion, growing up as a child of the 90s, I was privileged to be uh, part of the apex of children's television, in my opinion. Now, that's because all of the game shows that used to come on during the 90s were very well done. And my personal favorite was a game show called Legends of the Hidden Temple. And every time the show would turn on, you could hear the jungle beat that was playing. It was getting progressively louder as the show began. The camera starts in the bushes. It works its way to an opening, and suddenly you're met with the opening of the temple itself. And there goes the words, Legends of the Hidden Temple, each and every time the show comes on, exactly the same. Now, this show was great because it essentially was a team of two kids, six teams, and by the end of the episode, they have worked all the way down to one team remaining. And that team got to go into the temple, and in three minutes, they had to work their way through a series of rooms, each one with puzzles and only one way in or out to retrieve the artifact at the other side of the temple and get out by the time the three minutes had expired. Now, what was predictable about the show was not only the fact that it began the same way every time, but the fact that these children, these teenagers, were utterly incompetent. In fact, every time you watched the show, you would assume that these people had never watched the show themselves before getting on as contestants. This is, you're screaming at the television, you're wondering why in the world they're doing things the way that they do, but still, it was an addicting show, and it was very entertaining, even though oftentimes nobody actually won at the end. Well, when we get to this passage in the book of Judges, we could essentially say that by the time verse 1 starts, and we're met with this phrase, the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord Here we're presented with that same television announcement at the beginning of the episode, because this is not the first time that that phrase has been used in Judges. 
In fact, if you just opened your Bible to the book of Judges, flipped a couple pages and picked a new paragraph or a new chapter, chances are it's going to start in that way. In fact, it's already started in that way. In chapter 2, chapter 3, chapter 4, you had a brief period of celebration, the song of Deborah and Barak in chapter 5, and now here we are in chapter 6. It's the same show again, and frankly, it's the same incompetent contestants, the people of Israel. So we're granted uh, kind of a welcome to the story that picks up exactly where you might expect that it left off in the previous episode. And you can almost predict what's going to happen. But the thing is, it's easy when we come across a passage that's going to be familiar. You can probably predict how things are going to happen. Similar to the way that we worked our way through the book of First and Second Kings, you could almost guess how the events were going to end uh, during a particular king's reign. You could do the same thing here. But that tempts us to skim over it. It tempts us to miss out on what it is that God wants to teach us in this particular passage. And I would present to you that what God wants to teach us is posed, it's implied by way of the question, what do we forfeit when we give ourselves to idols? What is it that we forfeit when we give ourselves to idols? Now, that's the question that the text wants to answer to us by the time we make our way through these first 32 verses of the book of Judges in chapter 6. Now, the way that we can really break up this passage is really in two parts. If you're taking notes, if you want to write this out, you could say that the first 24 verses, verses 1 to 24, we're going to be met with this visible threat, Israel's visible threat. And then in verses 25 to 32, we're going to be shown the invisible threat. So the visible threat followed by, or the visible threat followed by the invisible threat. So when we make our way to this passage, we consider these first five or six verses or so, and we might say that the people of Israel find themselves in a dark place. These uh, new contestants, as it were, on the show are met with a new enemy, this time the Midianites. The Midianites who are uh, plaguing Israel, they're essentially besieging Israel, for seven years. If we kind of skim through uh, these first few verses, what we find is that this visible threat of the Midianites is essentially this. The people of Israel are in their land. They're in Canaan. They're in the promised land. And yet you have here the Midianites, but not only the Midianites, also the Amalekites and the people of the east come up against them. Now, what's interesting is this is basically a, a siege without walls. You think of the book like, like Nehemiah, where the concern is to build up the uh, outer uh, part of the community uh, to reinforce the walls of Israel, as it were. Well, here, the, the Israelites are essentially dwelling uh, in open borders, and yet they're being treated as if they've been uh, cut off. They've been surrounded, and they're kind of being squeezed into submission. This seven-year squeezing of Israel is the Amalekites, the Midianites, and the people of the east coming up to them and devouring their produce. They're destroying their crops. They're destroying or stealing away their cattle. And they're essentially starving the people of Israel to death, so much so that the people of Israel are now, as we see here in these opening verses, 
hiding in the caves and hiding in the mountains uh, just to make do, just to get by and just to survive in their own land. In fact, when we turn to uh, verse 5, we're told that these people, if you want to get a kind of biblical imagery here, these people are like locusts. They They can't be counted because there's so many of them. By the way, the people of the East, as it's described to us, uh, the speculation is that maybe these are Arabians, or you read several other commentaries and you're told, well, it could be the Arabians, but it could be this group or that group. Uh, kind of the uh, final opinion is that the people of the East essentially means anybody that was willing to participate in this picking on Israel. Anybody that wanted to join in in the eastern region, anybody that wanted to come alongside the Midianites and the Amalekites and make life difficult for Israel, it was fair game. Just jump on in. There's room for you to join us in this work of cruelty against them. But the author of Judges describes these people like locusts. And their effect is that the Israelites, verse 6, were brought very low as a uh, circumstance of utter despair. Now, what's interesting about the fact that the Israelites uh, have these locusts around them is that if you rewind to a different time in the history of Israel, you have a seven-year famine that leads Israel into Egypt. Remember, during the days of Joseph, there's a seven-year famine, and by the end of the book of Genesis, we're told that God uses that famine to bring Israel into Egypt so that when you pick up at the beginning of Exodus, the people of Israel could multiply. They could be strengthened. They could be so vast in number that they couldn't be counted. And don't forget the fact that when they're in Egypt, the Lord judges the Egyptians by sending locusts. So locusts is a sign of God's judgment against these wicked nations And now the tables have turned for Israel because where this first time of a seven-year famine leads them into Egypt to become strong and mighty, now this famine happening on their own home turf by locusts, suddenly Israel has become and has been brought into a place of enemies. No longer are they victims here. They're enemies. And these locusts, as it were, are uh, kind of pouncing on them. And where in the book of Exodus, Israel was brought very high and very strong, now Israel, verse 6, has been brought very low. So you have kind of a turning of the tables. Uh, The events that were supposed to get them to the promised land have now been flipped, and suddenly Israel finds themselves in the place of God's enemies. And now all of these covenant curses that Moses warned against them, by turning their back on the Lord, suddenly these have become their reality, this seven-year reality of suffering. Now, what's interesting is that even in the midst of the fact, verse 1, the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, drastic times call for drastic measures. And those drastic measures are the fact that even though the people of Israel had turned their back on the Lord, their only response at this point, this lowest of lows, was to cry to the Lord himself for help. And that's exactly what they do in verses 6 and 7. This visible threat of the Midianites has become so oppressive, has made life so difficult. Here they are essentially about to starve to death. Their cattle's being wiped away. Their crops are being wiped away. And they say, 
there's really nothing left for us to do at this point. We got to cry out to the Lord and see what happens from there. Now, the Lord regards this cry for help. And we see in verse 8, he sends out a prophet. He sends a prophet to Israel. And this prophet is very peculiar because what the people of Israel are expecting here is an answer. What the people of Israel are expecting is for God to make a move, for something to give here. The tension is building and building, and they're looking for some kind of reprieve. And yet the prophet comes in verse eight through, verses 8 through 10, and essentially the prophet says this to the people of Israel. I agree with you, things are very bad. That's the summary of his entire message. Now, this had to have struck the Israelites as kind of a cliffhanger moment because the prophet comes up. He recounts the fact that the Lord had led them out of Egypt. He brought them from a house of slavery. He's given them this land. And here's the warning in verse 10. And I said to you, I am the Lord, your God. You shall not fear the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell, but you have not obeyed my voice. End quotations right there. Nothing else is said. Now, to follow the script of what you would expect a prophet to do when he's bringing this kind of a message is you're anticipating the therefore. You're waiting on the therefore, here's the judgment of God. You might expect, because the people of Israel have been so wicked, you might expect that the prophet should be saying at this point, therefore, the Lord will no longer regard you. Or maybe they're expecting the Lord to be gracious, and he might say, instead of therefore, he might say, nevertheless, I still love you. Nevertheless, I will deliver you from the hand of the Midianites. But nothing is said. All they're left with is a cliffhanger. Uh, The angst is still present in the hearts of the Israelites. And as far as the text goes, nothing else is said by the prophet, and he goes about his merry way. Well, the good news for us as readers of the scriptures is that the story doesn't end here. Think of the, the episode, the choreography, as it were. The camera pans, the scene changes, and suddenly we're privy to information that this massive group of Israelites are not privy to, at least not yet. Because even though the prophet doesn't have anything left to say, God has something to say. And that's what we see starting in verse 11. The angel of the Lord came and sat under the terebinth at Ophrah, which belonged to Joash, the Abiazrite, while his son Gideon was beating out wheat in the winepress to hide it from the Midianites. Now, it's tricky in narratives because sometimes when you find yourself making your way from one verse to the next, you could have one, five, maybe even dozens of years pass from one verse to the next. So we might ask the question, we don't actually know how much time has passed from the message of the prophet to the response of the Lord here as he interacts now with Gideon. We at least know that the situation is the same because Gideon is hiding out, uh, beating this wheat, and which sounds quite ridiculous because why would you need to hide away to do something as basic as beating wheat to get some food for your family. But again, the Midianites are ready to pounce so much that Gideon has to hide away to do this basic task of his own livelihood. The angel of the Lord comes and sits under a terebinth tree. 
What's fascinating about this is that those who are reading this in the early times might understand that there's quite a, a nod, there's a callback happening here. And in fact, the callback is actually connecting this verse right with the preceding verse, verse 10. In verse 10, the prophet says, I am the Lord your God. You shall not fear the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. Now, where that message comes from originally is from Joshua. At the end of Joshua's ministry, it's that famous passage where Joshua says, choose whom you will serve, either God or the gods of the nations. And then as for me and my house, I will serve the Lord. Now, when Joshua says that, the people of Israel renew the covenant. Joshua takes that, he builds an altar, and he takes that renewed covenant with the people of God, and he sets it under a terebinth tree. So here is the angel of the Lord coming to Gideon, but not only picking a random spot. Now, this is probably not the same tree, uh, but the connotation is the same. The Lord is essentially showing up in this place to say, I know what you did last summer. The Lord is showing up saying, here is where we left off in covenant conversation. You vowed yourself to me, and I haven't gone anywhere. I'm still keeping my end of the covenant. I am still remaining faithful to you as my people. Now, it's a gesture of the Lord knows exactly what's going on. He knows the depths of their disobedience. But at the same time, the fact that he shows up here is also a gesture of his remarkable grace. Even though they have batted zero, even though they are like those contestants who are so incompetent, they can't make their way through the temple, they can't do anything, they haven't learned the lessons from the past, the Lord still remains faithful and he shows up here to leave um, that cliffhanger, pick it up, and pay it forward by adding some incredible resolution to this horrible situation with the Midianites. The Lord shows up. He says this to Gideon, verse 12, the Lord is with you, O mighty man of valor. Now, the irony of this, of how literal this greeting is, Gideon doesn't pick up on yet, but we'll keep working. So Gideon responds, please, sir, if the Lord is with us, why then has all this happened to us? And where are all his wonderful deeds that our fathers recounted to us, saying, did not the Lord bring us up from Egypt? But now the Lord has forsaken us and given us into the hand of Midian. Now, we might look at Gideon's response here and assume that he has lost all hope. But in fact, if we make our way further into the book of Hebrews, as we're working our way there during Sunday mornings, by the time we get to Hebrews chapter 11, we're going to see that Gideon is presented to us as a man of faith. Now, not a perfect man, but a man of faith. So we might say that Gideon is expressing, out of his own honesty, a holy discontent for this entire situation. He's saying, I know who the Lord is. I know what the Lord has done. I believe all of those things. But there's a disconnect here. There's a disconnect between who I know the Lord to be and what this current situation looks like, what my day in and day out is. In fact, I'm hiding right now in a wine press, beating wheat. I mean, things are not great for us. What happened? What gives? But he's asking this not only in kind of a holy discontent attitude, but kind of, we might say it this way, a, a faithful angst. He's looking for a resolution here, and the Lord gives him the resolution by essentially 
um, appointing him to be the guy. This is the Lord's response to him. Verse 14, go in this might of yours and save Israel from the hand of Midian. Do not I send you. Now, what we see in these next uh, handful of verses is the fact that Gideon uh, not only understands uh, what the Lord did for the Israelites by delivering them from Egypt, but he's actually picked up a couple of the plays in Moses' playbook because these kind of excuses that Gideon goes on to make, oh, I'm part of a weak clan, oh, I'm not the right guy for the job, he's essentially just repeating the kind of excuses that Moses himself made in the presence of the angel of the Lord. And he says, even with the Lord's promise, verse 16, but I will be with you, Gideon picks up another play from Moses' playbook and says, well, could you show me a sign? Could you guarantee my success? Could you show me, could you demonstrate the fact that this is actually going to work? Now he says he's going to um, present an offering to the Lord. He asks him to stay. Gideon goes to uh, get his things together. And it's still unclear whether Gideon actually knows whose presence he's in. It's still not quite clear to him, it seems. Uh, you, you do see in the Bible his kind of acknowledgement of him as, as Lord, but I think at this time it's essentially what we would say today, please, sir. It's kind of just a, a, a formal greeting or a formal kind of conversation piece. He still doesn't seem to quite know whose presence he's in, but he goes and gets his offering and verse 21, uh, the angel of the Lord reached out the tip of the staff that was in his hand, touched the meat in the 11 cakes. And after the fire consumes everything, uh, the angel vanishes from the sight of Gideon. And suddenly, Gideon realizes whose presence he's been in this whole time. And his response, alas, O Lord God, for now I have seen the angel of the Lord face to face. This was not a mere visitor to come to Gideon. This was not merely another prophet or maybe even the same prophet that we saw in verses 8 to 10. This was the Lord himself. Uh, this was what we call in Scripture a theophany, a, an appearance of God himself. And in fact, this angel of the Lord is the same angel of the Lord who appears to Moses. The same angel of the Lord who appears to Joshua, and even the same angel of the Lord who led the people of Israel out of Egypt and to the promised land that they're in now. So suddenly, Gideon realizes whose presence he's in. There's a rich history, and he realizes the humans who have been in the presence of the Lord, those whom the Lord has appeared to in our people's history, have gone on to do great things. And suddenly he realizes, I'm afraid. I'm afraid for my life. I have seen the Lord face to face. And the Lord responds, peace be to you. Do not fear. You shall not die. And Gideon builds an altar. By the way, they're back at that terebinth tree now. They've moved away from the wine press. They're back to uh, the terebinth tree. You see that in verse uh, 19. Uh, they've returned to the very place that the Lord showed up immediately. And essentially, this offering of, of Gideon serves as another covenant renewal, the same place that Israel kind of made as their altar to the Lord and said, we're renewing this covenant during the days of Joshua. Now Gideon offers himself to the allegiance of God to do his work 
and free the Israelites from the hand of Midian. So thus far, we've seen the visible threat, the angst in uh, the hearts of the people of Israel. And even Gideon needed to be shown uh, several ways uh, that the Lord himself hears the cries of his people. The Lord himself is actively and intimately involved. He has appeared before Gideon. He understands uh, the depths of this whole situation. And he's going to use Gideon to deliver the people of Israel from the hand of the Midianites. That's the visible threat. But now, for these next seven verses, the, towards the end of this passage that we're considering tonight, now it seems that the Lord sends Gideon on a strange uh, first quest. Um, if you play video games, uh, as I used to, I don't do it quite so much anymore, but if you played video games and these ones that are very task-oriented, uh, you have basically your main quest and then a whole bunch of side quests that your character has to uh, has to deal with and has to complete. And oftentimes in videos, it get, in video games, it gets annoying because you want to deal with the main quest, uh, but the game is pushing you in the direction of having to deal with all these side quests. Or maybe if you like to watch movies, you're watching a, a series that's only 30 minutes long and you're expecting the main storyline to be developed, but the scene keeps shifting to some unimportant, uninteresting character, and you're wondering, why are they getting so much screen time here? Let's move on to the big event. Well, it seems as if that's what the Lord is doing for Gideon. He's just commissioned him to free the people of Israel from the hand of the Midianites. Okay, we're going to do it. Let's start. What's my first order of business here? And it almost seems like the Lord sends him on a side quest. Take your father's bull, verse 25, and the second bull, seven years old, and pull down the altar of Baal that your father has and cut down the Asherah that is beside it. Now, we might ask the question, why in the world is it that the Lord tells him to do this? And we might remember that question that we asked earlier, what is it that we forfeit when we give ourselves to idols? That question is now answered for us in the text because we're shown that when we give ourselves to idols, we forfeit the fear of the Lord. When we give ourselves to idols, we forfeit the fear of the Lord. Gideon has now had his faith renewed, and we want to put it even uh, in more explicit language here, now that his fear of the Lord has been renewed, he's able to deal not with a side quest, but with matters of first importance for the people of Israel. There's a visible threat, the Midianites, but that's merely a symptom. There's a deeper threat to the people of Israel, an invisible threat. And what that invisible threat is, is the idolatry of their own hearts. And so the Lord looks past the peripheral matters, the visible threat of the Midianites, and he tells Gideon, deal with the heart of the matter. Your people, your own father has set up these idols. Tear them down. Only one God can be on the throne for Israel. And if it's going to be me, Baal and the Asherah pole have to go. Now, this is exactly how Gideon is commissioned uh, to deal with this. He has uh, two bulls that he's told to use. He's supposed to pull down the altar of Baal. He's supposed to cut down the Asherah, this 
wooden pole. You're supposed to use the wood from the Asherah, make uh, a fire, and give this offering to the Lord to show that there is, in a matter of speaking, a new sheriff in town, and it's not Baal, and it's not Asherah. It is Jehovah. It is God himself. Now, Gideon does this. He's afraid to do it, so he does it at night, verse 27. But the important thing is that he does it. Gideon is not this remarkable hero. He still has not lived up to the name that the Lord uh, used to greet him, mighty man of valor, but he's obedient. And that's the most important thing. Gideon, though he's afraid of the people, his fear of the Lord is greater than his fear of the people. And because of that, he can be obedient and do what the Lord tells him to do. Now, we work our way to the end of the story here, at least for this evening. And the people of the town wake up. Uh, essentially, they can see the smoke. Uh, this is a high place, a, a hilltop, a mountaintop. They can see the smoke. Uh, they can smell what has happened during the night. And somehow, we're not sure how, but somehow uh, they quickly uh, realize Gideon's the one who does this. Now, the townspeople, <clears throat> their first response is very ironic because they say in verse 30, uh, then the men of the town said to Joash, Gideon's father, bring out your son that he may die, for he has broken down the altar of Baal and cut down the Asherah beside it. Now, ironically, what they say Gideon deserves is what they deserve. Gideon has torn down this altar of Baal, the the Asherah. He's desecrated these idols. He deserves to die. But these people, the people of Israel, are guilty of a death sentence themselves because they are the ones who have forsaken the Lord and built up these idols. Now, we don't know all the ins and outs, but historically speaking, uh, Baal and Asherah worship was uh, in some uh, circles, it's communicated as the worship of, of sun and moon. Uh, there was oftentimes uh, gross cultic prostitution and all kinds of things happening. So this is not merely just these kind of mute idols that let's get a little bit of, of uh, fire going, let's get the wood out, and then let's maybe sacrifice an animal or two. There was uh, some very disturbing cultic practices, which is one of the reasons why the Lord speaks of Israel's covenant unfaithfulness as adultery, because literally they're practicing in this sexual promiscuity as they have built up these false idols. We don't know all the things that was happening, but that's at least somewhat of a historical background of the kind of things that were going on and how important it seems that it was to them because their response to Gideon destroying uh, this altar to Baal and Asherah is he needs to be put to death. Now, we're not sure how uh, legitimate Joash, his father, is. It's perhaps the fact that Joash is simply a guy that wants to play nice with society. Maybe he is afraid of the townspeople, and that's why he volunteered to have this altar kind of uh, sponsored by Joash in the first place. And that could also be the reason why Gideon is so afraid of these people that he decides to do it at night could very well be learned behavior from his father. Maybe their entire family is afraid of the townspeople, and so again, they want to play nice and just do what the people want. But remarkably, Joash gets the courage in verse 31. He says to all those who stood against him, will you contend for Baal or will you save him? 
Whoever contends for him shall be put to death by mourning. If he is a god, let him contend for himself, because his altar has been broken down. It seems that Joash has come to his senses now, and nothing else in the text says that the people had any kind of argument to be made here. Uh, what it seems to be communicating as the text continues is that the people have come to their senses now. Uh, Gideon had to shake things up. Gideon had to make uh, a very provocative gesture uh, to snap the people back to reality, that God, Jehovah, is the one true God, and these false gods that they have been worshiping are accounted as nothing. And they have to be shown that or else they're going to continue fearing these Midianites. You see, what we find, as Gideon is explaining this last verse, as Jerubal, the contender of Baal, uh, breaks down the altar of Baal, what we see is that God is behind the work of Gideon. It is God who is contending against Baal and fighting for his people. What's fascinating is that the people of Israel were so caught up in the peripheral, so caught up in the visible threat of the Midianites that they lost sight of the fact that those were merely symptoms of a deeper issue. That's all secondary to the primary issue of the heart, the visible ramifications of the invisible condition of the people of Israel, their idolatrous hearts. And as Gideon, through the power of the Lord, comes and shakes things up, he breaks down these altars, he snaps them back to reality, he wakes them up from their slumber, and they realize the fight is not first and foremost Israel versus the Midianites, but Jehovah versus Baal. And God wants the people of Israel to realize that before they ever move on to dealing with the Midianites. Before we move on to the battle, the physical battle, we have to deal with the spiritual battle. So what can we take away from this? When we hear uh, through the progression of the text that when we forfeit uh, the fear of the Lord and we give ourselves over to idols and we look at these depictions of the people of Israel and we say, well, we don't have high places. We don't have mountaintops. We don't make animal sacrifices. What in the world is the connection between what I'm reading here and what is happening in my own life? Uh, We might say that the Apostle Paul brings up an interesting point in the book of Romans. Now, you don't have to turn here, but in the book of Romans, in chapter 3, Paul quotes from Psalm 31, or 36, verse 1, and he says, it says this uh, from uh, the pen of David, transgression speaks to the wicked deep in his heart. There is no fear of God before his eyes. What we're met with in this text that we can take away and that we have to wrestle with is who do you fear or what do you fear? What I don't mean by that is what are you afraid of? But I mean, what do you regard? What do you primarily regard in your own life? What is it that you fear? Because according to the Bible, if it's God, it can't be anything else. And if it's something else, we've removed God from that place of holy and rightful fear. It's an either-or 
It's the Joshua commission to the people of Israel, choose whom you will serve. Now, again, you might not make animal sacrifices at your house. You might not have a high place. You might not worship Baal, uh, properly speaking, the way that the Israelites did. But what kind of idols do you regard in your own life? Maybe your idol is an idol of preference and logistics. Your whole life is based around a, a particular financial situation that you're trying to aspire to. Or maybe it's your workplace situation. Or maybe it's simply the logistics of your life, what the day in and day out looks like. And you worship the perfect scenario of those things that you're trying to attain so much that you leave the Lord out of the picture until the Midianites start showing up. And you say, Lord, where are you at? Lord, what's going on in my life? We can get tunnel vision when we set up these kind of idols of preference or our ideal idols, if you want to put it that way. It could also be that our idols are situations in our life, maybe for some of us, maybe it's the person, maybe it's the black rectangle in your back pocket, maybe it's the larger black rectangle hanging over your fireplace, uh, where we give so much homage to the things of this world that the Lord becomes a secondary matter to us. The Lord himself becomes an afterthought until the Midianites start showing up. The people of Israel had to look at the ministry of Gideon, especially when he's told to tear down this altar, and say, why are you so concerned to tear down this altar? We have people that are trying to starve us to death. Why are you concerned with doing this? We might say that people look at what the Lord is up to here and consider it out of order. Well, when Jesus Christ himself came to the earth, the crowds often thought what he was doing was out of order. The crowds often thought that what he was doing was matters of secondary importance. Aren't you concerned about the oppression of Rome? Aren't you concerned about being a political messiah? Aren't you concerned about this issue or that issue? Why are you dealing with these issues? But Jesus always has the primary matter at hand, the matter of the heart itself. Jesus comes not to deal with outside issues first and foremost. He wants to deal with the heart itself. And friends, those of us who consider ourselves Christians, it's often the same way in our own lives. We often become so concerned with the Midianites out there, the political situation of America, uh, the flailing church attendance in America as a whole, or what my neighbor is up to, what my children are up to, what my spouse is up to. We're concerned with all the things out there, and we forget that we have the Holy Spirit himself indwelling us that is concerned with matters in here. The heart of the matter, literally speaking, spiritually speaking, is what Jesus is motivated to be at work to change, to transform within us. And we can set our sight on all of the other things, all the idealistic things of this world that we hope to take place, or maybe we're waiting for some kind of catastrophic event, maybe we're just waiting for the Lord's return, but we forget that without our own personal holiness, no one will see the Lord. 
the Lord is invested not only in the big picture, but the individual hearts of his people. And oftentimes when we look and see that God is doing something out of order or out of what we would expect him to do or what we think he should be concerned with, we should take a second look and ask ourselves, is he trying to reinstate my fear of him? Is he trying to rid me of these idols that I have clinged to? Is he showing me that in fact I have forfeited the fear of the Lord in favor of all these other fears? Well, may it be that God is pleased to show us that in our own hearts. Amen. Let's pray.